0: Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church, Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm gonna have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with you guys. Uh, Like Michael said, we're continuing in a series that we've been doing over the last number of weeks, uh, whether you've been here in person or maybe you've just joined us online or if it's your first time here, uh, where we've been doing this series through the season of Lent, this 40 days of prayer and fasting building up to Easter. And specifically, this series that we've been doing, is we've entitled The King's Cross, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, the account of Mark's uh, recount of Jesus' story, basically, focusing primarily on the last few days of Jesus, those last few events building up to the cross. And, and we're at a point in the story where things are getting pretty heavy, where it's getting, it's, we're, we're right up to almost the last point. In fact, what we're gonna talk about today uh, is almost to the point of, sometimes we don't even talk about this till Good Friday. And so we're, it's getting pretty serious. It's, there's, getting a lot of, there's, there's a lot of tremendous suffering that we see happening, that Jesus willingly went to the cross to suffer for us. Sometimes we all experience suffering, don't we? Sometimes we find ourselves in very hard situations, or we find ourselves in difficult decisions to make, or it just seems like our circumstances, there's just no avoiding it or no easy way around it. Suffering seems to be the universal experience of humanity that we all experience from time to time at at different levels. Sometimes our suffering is quite small, just, just beyond annoying, right? Other times it's extremely great, tremendously great feeling to the point of death. Timothy Keller has a great explanation of suffering that I think is quite insightful. He said this, suffering happens, we might say, when there is a gap, a gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life. The bigger that gap, the greater the suffering. Think about that for a minute. When we experience suffering, it means that there is a strong desire for something, something that we want, something that we long for, something that we want to hold on to or maintain, maybe something we, we want to be free from. You know, we might want to be free from this chronic pain or this illness, or we might have a desire to be in a loving relationship, or we might want something more internal like this desire for peace, right? But when, but when there is a disconnection between our desires and our present circumstances, when there doesn't seem to be any, any improvement in our health, when your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you unexpectedly, when your anxiety disorder seems to be robbing you of peace, then, there's a, then we experience suffering. Then there's a big, there can be a big gap. And the larger the gap between those two things, the greater the suffering we experience. When that gap is, is only a crack, well, nobody's life is perfect, right? We can manage that. I can deal with that. That's normal. But what happens when that crack becomes a canyon? When it seems like it's so wide, how do we respond to that? How do we respond in that kind of suffering? Of these last few weeks, as we've seen Jesus the King getting closer and closer to the cross, we see him make lots of difficult decisions and respond in some difficult circumstances. Last week, Michael talked about uh, the Last Supper. Jesus sat down with his 12 disciples, his closest friends, to have one last meal with them, and, and Jesus, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, sent him off to basically just do that. And, and, he, and today we're going to look at a passage where we see that Jesus is responds in a way to a really difficult situation where he's basically waiting for Judas to come back. He's waiting for Judas to come back and for him to be arrested. We're going to see how Jesus responds to this coming imminent suffering when he takes the disciples into the garden to pray. So we're going to be looking at Mark 14 32 through 42. We'll have the verses up on the screen, but if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, I would encourage you to go to that. I would encourage you to bring that every, every week. I'm sure you'll bring your phones, but <laughs> no doubt that. But just to be following along, because I am gonna jump around and come back to it, but I think it's always helpful to kind of have that in front of us. So Mark 14, starting off in verse 32, we read this. They, talking about Jesus and the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, "'Sit here while I pray.'" He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and they began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell into the ground and he prayed, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to say to him. We're sorry, we fell asleep again, Jesus. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In this passage, we see that the suffering that Jesus experiences doesn't just happen at the cross but it actually begins before the cross. We see this deep spiritual, emotional struggle the temptation that Jesus is facing, this temptation to avoid going to the cross while he's praying in the garden. And again, it's, been, it's just after the Last Supper, now it's getting late in the evening and the night, and Jesus can't sleep. I mean, could you? Could you sleep knowing what was about to happen? I don't think that I could. Uh, Jesus takes the remaining 11 disciples, because remember again, Judas the 12th has gone off to betray him. He takes the remaining 11, he takes them to this garden to pray, and Jesus tells eight of the 11 to sit down, probably near the entrance of this big, large, walled garden, and invites the remaining three, Peter, James, and John, to come further into the garden with him. His, he brings his inner circle of his inner circle, right? in. to to be a part of this time with him. Now Luke tells us, one of the other gospel writers, that it was the usual custom for Jesus to go pray. It was the usual custom for Jesus to go into the garden to pray, so the disciples probably didn't think much of it. Uh, But in this instance, it was going to be quite different, quite different, because Jesus begins to really show us externally what he's deeply experienced in suffering and wrestling with internally. In verses 33 and 34, he said this, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he told them. Deeply distressed, Jesus, it meant when Jesus said that, he meant that he was astonished, that he was terrified. Luke and, and Matthew tell us that Jesus went to his knees and then further went lying on his face in prayer sweating profusely. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus cried out loud, shouted out loud in, in, in prayer and in weeping. This is a different side of Jesus than we would have ever seen. We've never seen this side of Jesus before. We see a confident Jesus, teaching and praying and, and performing miracles for people, right? Going against the authorities and, and seeming confident. Everybody was amazed at how he spoke with authority. We've seen an angry Jesus a couple weeks ago, flipping tables over in the temple. We've seen a sad Jesus before, filled with compassion, moved to, to, to speak to people and to move in people's lives. But we've never seen an undone Jesus. We've never seen Jesus so troubled, so overwhelmed that he tells Peter, James, and John that he's at the point of death, that his soul feels like it's at the point of death. We see in this part of in this story the pressing, the pressing, the squeezing on of Jesus, the spiritual and emotional and even physical effects of him being so pressed and under this pressure of knowing what is coming, knowing the suffering that he's gonna face, that he's never experienced before. It's interesting to me that the garden that Jesus took the disciples to to pray in was called Gethsemane. And that, that translated, that, that, that name literally means oil press, oil press. Scholars think that the Garden of Gethsemane was probably owned by a wealthy business person that Jesus was acquaintances with and knew, giving him permission to go there. It's, you know It seems a little odd to go into somebody's property in the middle of the night if you don't know them, right? But probably knew him. It would have been located on the side of the Mount of Olives, and it had its own olive press where they would have taken olives and pressed them and squeezed them to separate the oil from the olive pulp or whatever. Now, think: have you ever squeezed an olive and tried to get oil out of it? I, don't, it's, I mean, it's not an orange, right? It's not like just juice starts flowing out tremendously. It takes a lot of pressure to get just a little bit of oil. The pressing, the squeezing of olives in this garden was a profound metaphor for the experience of the internal pressing and suffering that Jesus was already beginning to experience in the garden. That gap, that gap between Jesus' desires and his circumstances seems to be basically as far as the east is from the west. And again, up until this point, we've seen Jesus be so supernaturally strong so strong. When he's cornered or challenged by the leaders, it doesn't seem to faze him. He's under all these expectations and pressure, and he seems to handle it in amazing stride. But here in verse 36, he cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Take it from me. Why Why is this cup, this cup that symbolizes suffering, that symbolizes death, Why is this cup so unbearable for Jesus? Why does he want to avoid it so much? Well, it's the the cup of sin. It's the cup of sin. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah predicted that the suffering servant Jesus would be crushed or pressed for our sins. And Jesus is about to take upon the weight of all the sin of all the world throughout the entire history of the world. And remember, Jesus was perfect. Jesus never knew sin he never experienced the effects of sin before he never even as a little boy you know never felt that little bit of guilt of picking on his younger brother right he never felt that little bit of shame of being caught by his mother mary telling a little white lie you know he never experienced any of that and now he's going to experience all of it all of it not just the little things but all the big things as well So it's the cup of sin. It's also the cup of wrath. It's because of our sin, because of the world's unrighteousness, there has to be justice. Someone has to take on that wrath of God that Jesus is going to drink that in by taking on the cup. And finally, it's the cup of loneliness. It's the cup of loneliness. No wonder he invites the three disciples to come in closer with them. You know, Jesus would go off and pray from time to time by himself. But he was never alone. The, God the Father was always with him. Jesus, who had the, the most perfect intimate relationship with God the Father, never knew what it was like to be alone. He always knew that God was with him and was able to communicate with him. He never felt that before. But by drinking this cup, he was gonna have to do it without God the Father. He had never experienced that loneliness before. The pressing, the squeezing, that Jesus is going through has created this gap that is bigger than anyone in the history of the world has ever known. You know, this time last year, that began a pretty good-sized gap for all of us, right? We started to experience a pretty big gap in our desires in our circumstances. Was I think about this week that my children got the call that, hey, they're not going back to school, right? And what we thought was gonna be for Two weeks became the rest of the school year, right? And what we thought we were all just gonna shut down for a little bit became a lot longer of a time. Uh, We all have experienced suffering in this past year, a gap in this past year. But I know for some of you, beyond the pandemic, that because of the things that you've been personally going through, that gap has been tremendous. Many of you are going through deep suffering right now deep, difficult circumstances. And and, and so what do we do in those situations when we're this pressed, when we're this squeezed? How do we respond to that? Well, I don't know about you, but but I wanna do what Jesus does. If anybody's gonna handle this kind of thing well, it's gonna be him. And so as a Christian, I wanna follow his example. I wanna follow his lead. So what do we see? Jesus has basically three choices here. He's got basically three choices, and we have three options as well when we're in times of struggle in times of suffering one we can try to shift our circumstances we can try to shift our circumstances if there's a gap between our desires and circumstances well, let's move our circumstances it means you know sometimes we try to get off the road that we're on and get on a different road sometimes that makes sense right we, we fight our cancer right we try to find a healthier work environment to be in we seek counsel uh, to learn strategies to cope with our anxiety. yeah, you know, we take steps to see if we can shift our circumstances where wisdom would say that makes sense. But sometimes our circumstances are not shiftable. They're out of our control. They're not changeable. Sometimes they might be changeable, but we're, we're not called to change them. Or we shouldn't change them. You know, if we develop a pattern in our life where we're just constantly jumping from ship to ship to ship, right? Where we're constantly just quitting job after job after job. We're constantly just abandoning relationship after relationship after relationship. Whenever we get the lightest, smallest amount of uncomfortableness or suffering or things aren't going perfectly, then basically we go through life with the goal of of just trying to avoid any kind of challenges, any kind of pain, and in the end cause way more suffering typically. The temptation that Jesus faced in this story is that, well, do I have to go to the cross? What could I do to not go to the cross? I, I mean, Jesus could do, he could have done lots of things to not have gone to the cross, to avoid it, to shift his circumstances, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Second thing we can do is we could try to to change the other variable in the equation, our desires. We can try to deny our desires or suppress our desires, I should say, right? Where where we could try to move them closer to our circumstances or just get rid of them altogether. You know, we can go through this uh, life with an attitude of just passive fatalism, like where we just become totally detached, detached. We tell ourselves, we convince ourselves that our desires are just illusions, uh, that they don't really matter, or that they're actually bad to have. Like, we believe lies, like, it's just, it's bad to, you know, want a loving relationship. I just deserve to be an abusive relationship. That's just how all relationships go. I just deserve that, right? Or I'm just destined to work for crummy bosses, right? We just detach ourselves from our desires. But what I love about Jesus is he doesn't do that either. He He's not emotionally and spiritually dead or detached. He doesn't want to suffer. He doesn't want to die on the cross. He's face down on the ground, crying out loud to God the Father, take this cup from me. So what does this mean? It means that we can do that too. It means that we, in times of trial, times of temptation, times of pain, we can cry out to God. We can pray. And he promises to listen to us. He doesn't want us to become numb to life or think that he's indifferent to our desires. What I love is that Jesus doesn't choose either of those first two, he chooses a third option. He chooses to surrender both of them to God. He chooses to surrender. In this story, we see that the trouble, the suffering that he's experiencing is a vast, but he doesn't He doesn't ignore his desires, and he doesn't force a change in his circumstances. Instead, he says to God the Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. God, your will be done, not my own. Anything is possible for you, God, but just because it's possible doesn't mean it's your plan, and I want to follow your plan, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. And that's the next point that we see that the pressing of Jesus causes him to, to choose to surrender. We see the surrendering of Jesus to align his will with God's will. He doesn't try to close the gap. He actually chooses to willingly stand in the gap of suffering. I came across this story of a guy in the New York, of a guy in the, uh, named Robert Gratz. It was in the New York Times. And I It's a pretty inspiring story, and Robert Gratz went through kind of a Garden of Gethsemane experience. He was born in 1928 in West Virginia, grew up in the Great Depression, World War II. As a young white man in the late 1940s, he attended Capital University here in Columbus, Ohio, actually. After after undergrad there, he went on to seminary, and Gratz accepted his first full-time pastoring gig uh, in... Uh, at a church called Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church. He moved his wife and his kids to Montgomery, Alabama, in 1955, and his church was an all-black congregation. And little did Gratz know that within six months of arriving, one of his new friends, Rosa, would be arrested for refusing to give her seat up on a bus. Gratz found himself in quite a difficult situation. Here he is pastoring in the deep south during the beginning of the bus boycotts and the civil rights movement, and he had to make a decision. Was he going to walk alongside and help his congregation? Or was he going to try and change his circumstances? I mean, he could have easily have just fled, hightailed it back to Ohio, but instead he chose to stay spending much of his time driving his parishioners to and from work to the store as they weren't riding the bus. And he became more involved publicly throughout the whole process. You know, there were were a number of white ministers in the Montgomery area during that time that privately supported the desegregation efforts. But Robert Gratz was the only white minister publicly to do so. He was the only one to publicly do so. Here, if you want to throw up this picture Gratz, Gratz is in the middle of this picture when it comes up here. He's with two other ministers. You might recognize the one on the right, Martin Luther King Jr., right? Over the time that Robert Gratz and his family were were living there and he was pastoring there, this put a major target on Robert Gratz's back and on his family's back. On one occasion, his car tires were slashed, Sugar was poured in his gas tank. Him, himself, his wife, his kids were sent death threats in the mail pretty regularly. Uh, The uh, Ku Klux Klan bombed his house three different times. Miraculously, they were all his family was unharmed. One one of those times, 11 sticks of dynamite was thrown in his front yard and it didn't explode. (laughs) Isn't that a miracle? See, Gratz, he didn't try to shift the circumstances, and he didn't hide in the shadows. He regularly prayed. He regularly prayed and found courage and strength to surrender his will to God's will. He regularly read Psalm 27 and found strength and courage in that psalm. I would encourage you to go home and read that psalm sometime this week. And When you think about his story, it'll make a lot of sense uh, why that one was so powerful, but He stepped into the gap of suffering with his fellow black brothers and sisters. He didn't want any praise or glory. He's he's gone relatively unknown throughout history. He simply wanted to follow God's will for his life. Robert Gratz lived to be 92 and passed away this past September. See, when we find ourselves in times of trial, when we find ourselves in times of difficult decisions, in times of suffering, whether it's big, big or small, Uh, the choice we can make is we can pray. We can pray. We can cry out to God. We can cry out to God. We can bring it before God. We can say, your will, not my will. You know, when we're in pain, we can cry out to God and we can ask him. We We can be honest and transparent and vulnerable and ask him to take things away, to heal us, to cure us, to relieve the suffering we're going through. And many times he does. But sometimes he says, hey, I want you to walk through this though. I'm doing something in this. And I want you to walk through this. I don't want you to force a shift in your circumstances. I also don't want you to deny your desires or suppress them. I want you to learn to follow the example of Jesus. I want you to learn to follow the example. And that's the final point that I wanna make. To following the example of Jesus means to be a disciple of Jesus. The discipling of Jesus. if, If you follow Jesus long enough, there will be times where he will invite you into the garden of Gethsemane. There will be experiences in your life where he will invite you into that. We see in this story that Jesus does that with these three disciples and that he's trying to teach them even in this final hour. He doesn't go in and pray completely alone with nobody around. He has Peter, James, and John come in further into the garden. And I think that's partially because He wanted them close enough to hear him crying out, take this cup from me, God. To see him a little ways off, face down on the ground. To witness him then make a decision to be obedient to the will of God, to surrender to the will of God, to say, rise, let's go, here comes my betrayer. You know, when Peter falls asleep and keeps falling asleep, right, Jesus gets pretty frustrated with them. Verse 37, 38 says this. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice how Jesus calls him Simon here, not Peter. See, if you, if you know the story, Jesus, Simon is his birth name, But Jesus gives him a new name at a point in their ministry. He gives him the name Peter. So it would make sense for Jesus to call him Peter, which there's a whole story behind that we don't have time to go into. But but in this story, he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him by his birth name, Simon, which is interesting because the Hebrew name Simon literally means listen, hear, understand. By, By Jesus saying Simon, It's a play on the word, that name. He's basically, Simon, are you listening? Are you hearing me? Are you understanding? Are you paying attention to what I am doing right now? Obviously, he wasn't. He was falling asleep. I think Peter, if he would have known what was about to happen, he wouldn't have been able to sleep. Jesus knew that the greatest trial of his own life and that the greatest trial of the disciples' lives were about to happen in a matter of minutes. And what's interesting is these three, Peter, James, and John, all three of these guys specifically told Jesus that they would go and follow him to the end. They specifically said, I will never deny you. I will follow you. In Mark 10, James and John confidently said that they would drink from the same cup as Jesus. I don't think they knew what cup he he meant. In Mark 14, 29, Simon Peter said... Even if all fall away, I will not. But I don't think that he really understood. Jesus is trying to warn them that the greatest test of their life was about to happen. So you better get praying. You better get praying. And see, this is the weapon that God gives us. It's prayer. It's prayer. It's in our prayer life that, we, that God strengthens us to face what seems unfaceable, He gives us courage and boldness to do the things that seem impossible to face and and keep going through the difficulties of life. We go to God, the Father. We can be honest and intimate. We We can cry out to Him, and we can ask for strength, the strength to surrender, for strength to be obedient to His will. You know, the very, very first temptation in the whole Bible to go against God's will to sin Happened in a garden, didn't it? it? Happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve faced that, that, that difficult decision, that difficult trial. And now we find ourselves in another garden. And Jesus is facing another great temptation to avoid the cross. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded. He succeeded through deep, dependent prayer and obedience to the will of God. If you're here today, if you're being pressed today, if you're being squeezed some way today, and you're facing some really difficult circumstances, you're not alone in this room. There are lots of people in this room right here going through hard things. But more importantly, you're not alone because Jesus is with you. God is with you. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the most difficult of difficult circumstances. He knows how hard it is to decide to be obedient to the will of God, even if it's hard, even if it's painful. And we see this proof. We see the proof of this, that the King Jesus was willing to go to the cross to die for us. So we can turn to him, and he will promise to stand in the gap with us. And the good news is, is that when we're standing in the will of God, that he won't waste our suffering. He won't waste it, that he promises to use it for good in some way. Just like God used the cross for good on our behalf, God will do the same thing with your suffering. I want to invite the worship team to start to come and make their way back up here. Before we go back into worship, before we go back into that, I want to share one last thing with you. And this is a prayer that Michael shared with me last week, and I think that it fits really amazingly well with the talk today that that I'm giving. It's a prayer that St. Ignatius used to pray and teach his Jesuit brothers this prayer. It's a prayer of surrender to God. It's a prayer where we say, God, your will be done. It's a prayer of in difficult times where we can when we're going through Garden of Gethsemane-like experiences that we can lean on. So if you want to throw that, throw that prayer up there, um, I want to actually, I want us to pray this together. I know this can be a little difficult in a group, but I want us to pray it out loud together. I'll try to go kind of steady. And, uh, so join me in saying this. Take, O Lord, and receive my entire liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my whole will. All that I am and all that I possess, you have given me. I surrender it all to you, to be disposed of according to your will. Give me only your love and your grace. With these, I will be rich enough and will desire nothing more, amen, amen. Why don't we stand, why don't we stand? So we're gonna go into a time of worship. Uh, but during our time of worship, if you did not get a chance to grab the communion elements on the tables, in the back tables, uh, right by the double doors, I would encourage you to do that. After worship, Kay, one of our small group leaders, is going to come up and lead us in a time of taking communion together. So you don't, we're not going to take it during worship, we'll take it afterwards. And then I'll come back up and we'll have some time to just see what God wants to do and to pray for each other. So, so let's, uh, let's worship.